You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I've got Russ Roberts on as a guest. You may remember that I, I was fortunate enough to be on his podcast, Econ Talk, last year. A lot of our audience is crossover audience, so this is going to be a treat to get to hear Russ answer some questions for a change. For those of you that don't know Russell Roberts, he's an economist. He's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The reason I wanted to chat with him specifically today is because he has a book that was released Towards the end of last year called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness. So, Russ Roberts, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Great to be with you. I'm really excited. For the non-economist, can you just tell us who Adam Smith is and, and why he matters? So, Adam Smith uh, was uh, a Scot. He was born in 1723, died in 1790. He had a somewhat quiet life. He lived a lot of it with his mom. His father passed away before he was born. And he was a teacher and a tutor and toward the end of his life, a government official. And he wrote two books. That's it. We have some of his notes and lectures, but they were really important books. So the first one that people have heard of is an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. That was published in 1776, a pretty important year, and he did influence uh, the founders, I think, as far as we know. He's not the first economist, but a lot of people consider him the first economist. That book was of incredible scholarly achievement, and he has insights into education, into trade, specialization, the division of labor, government. The breadth of it is just extraordinary, and it's very well written. You can still read large chunks of it with profits available online free of charge at the Library of Economics and Liberty, econlib.org. His other book is the one I was interested in, and that other book hasn't made much of a splash in the modern era. It's called The Except in Scholarly Circles, which is a shame. It's the theory of moral sentiments, and it's really his theory of what makes us tick, the essence of human nature, how we interact with each other what we care about, what brings happiness and deep satisfaction. And it's a wonderful book. It's just a little hard to read. So most people haven't even heard of it. And I wanted to try to bring some of his ideas into the modern world. He's important for a lot of reasons. Probably the most important is that as the sort of first economist, again, he's not literally the first economist, but really the one who in many ways kicked off not just economics, but social science with his analysis and and understanding of commercial activity and national income and trade. It had a huge effect on the world because he really made the case along the way. He's he's not an ideologue, but along the way, he made the case for the virtues of economic liberty and freedom. And that, of course, had a big impact on the world. I'd like to have people understand a little bit of the context of the day because you, you've called him, you know, the first economist and he's given that title. Why was this such a revolutionary book for its time? I should mention he, he would not have called himself an economist. He considered himself a moral philosopher, which of course I actually think 
many economists are today. They pretend they're scientists and social engineers, but I think we're all in our profession somewhat uh, philosophical, and I think it's better to be honest about that than to pretend that we're just uh, green eye shade number crunchers, because uh, I think that's deceptive and, and, and not true. But he wrote at a time when, as I said, it was, wasn't the first to write e- about economics, but in his day, a lot of people were very, uh, as they are today, worried about trade. And the dominant idea of his day was was mercantilism, which was an idea that trade was about how to get ahead of your neighbors by accumulating lots of gold at the time, which was the, the source of uh, a store of value. So a lot of nations and a lot of people thought the way you got wealthy as a nation was to store up gold by exporting a lot of stuff. And that idea, which is still, in my opinion, unfortunately popular today to some extent, it was a misunderstanding, and in my view. And Smith really made the first real case against mercantilism that stuck. And he explained a couple of things. He explained the trade made both sides better off. He explained that keeping out foreign products usually hurt the people in the country that were so-called protected. And he pointed out that uh, a mineral is not what brings us happiness and wealth and isn't a source of true prosperity. It's the skills and output of the people who live in that country rather than how much gold they accumulate because gold's value changes. And so, for example, You know, if you have lots of money, but it doesn't buy very much stuff, you're poor, not rich. What Smith really understood, and this is over 200 years ago, is that prosperity comes from your command over goods and services, not over how many pieces of paper you have, because the pieces of paper are only valuable depending on what they can buy. The Wealth of Nations, and I think this is from your book, and I think you're quoting someone else here by saying it made capitalism respectable which, as you describe the time, is a radical transformation. I think some people today think of it as a a book that legitimizes greed. But the way you describe, and I think the theory of moral sentiments as a prism to view the wealth of nations is a really important one. Why are the two books so important together as opposed to separately? Well, first of all, you make a point I should have made earlier when I was talking about why Smith is important. He did legitimize the commercial society, and he did it in a very particular way. You have to remember he was writing again in the in the late part of the 18th century. The Industrial Revolution was just beginning, so it's like in a way ironic that he's writing about the wealth of nations at a time when most nations, by modern standards, were very very poor and had been poor for a very very long time. But he was seeing that there was some nations starting to grow and starting to have a standard of living, not just for the richest people, but for people beyond the the elite. And he wanted to understand that. And I think along the way, he had some very important observations about commercial life. And in particular, he argues very, very early on, you know, he says, basically, we're, we're very different from animals. We make trades. We exchange with one another. We try to better ourselves. You know, he says, you'll never see a dog do that. You'll never see a dog make an exchange. The reason that's important, it's important for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons was he said, you know, if you want to trade with someone, you have to tell them why it's good for them, not why it's good for you. You have to put yourself in their shoes. You have to imagine what they're interested in. You have to have some form of empathy 
And Smith saw commercial life as improving one's character because it forced you to think about what your customers wanted and needed. And, of course, to be cheerful to them when they came into your store. And, of course, hanging over all that in Smith's vision and I think in modern economics as well is this idea of competition. That if you don't please your customers, if you aren't good at putting yourself in your customer's shoes, they're going to go elsewhere. And that that opportunity to go elsewhere is what concentrates the seller's mind on what the consumer and customer really values and, and wants. So even within the commercial sphere, Smith saw trade as an improving activity or something that was good for you because it forced you to step outside yourself. That's the wealth of nations. And in the wealth of nations, Smith's vision of humanity is very self-interested, but it's not greedy. And I'm glad you made that point. A lot of people think that the lesson of the wealth of nations is that greed is good because what happens when you're greedy is you try to make, you know, good products and then that helps other people. And there's some truth to that, but Smith was interested in self-interest, not greed. Greed is the elevation of money and acquiring stuff and grasping at material stuff above virtue. And Smith was very much against that. In fact, he, in the theory of moral sentiments, says many times that the pursuit of wealth is a fool's game. You're not going to be any particularly happier with more stuff than you are now. In particular, ambition can be all-consuming. It can seduce you into doing things that are immoral, that you'll regret later and hurt your happiness. And so in one book, he's trying to explain the wealth of nations, how do nations get wealthy and how individuals, of course, get wealthy along the way. But in the other book, he's saying, you know, this wealth thing is kind of exaggerated. It's value. We're easily seduced and attracted by it. And we ought to always keep in mind the virtues of treating others well and being careful about not to to do bad things and and to follow justice and morality. And you ask, how do the books go together? Well, for me, some people have been puzzled by how they go together. But for me, it's fairly clear there are some things that are, that are of course, still puzzling. But the way I see the two books going together, I want to say two things about that, if I, if I could. Yeah, please. One is, this is what I say in my book, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. In the Wealth of Nations, Smith is talking about trade and exchange and commercial life, which is generally done with strangers. And Smith understood, and I think he's right, and I don't think it's changed since 1776, that in general, our ability to, to love beyond a small, intimate circle is very difficult. We can't care deeply about people we don't know well. We can't care deeply about strangers. And so when I'm on the Internet looking for a product or I'm at the mall or I'm trying to figure out what kind of job to take, it's all about me. It's about trying to get a good deal. It's about trying to find a bargain. It's about finding a good job that, that brings me satisfaction. That's our interaction with strangers. It's pretty self-interested, and it's probably not going to change. That's pretty much the way we are. But when we deal with the people who are close to us, our neighbors, our family, our friends, and that's the sphere that the theory of oral sentiments is about, Smith says we can't any longer, even though we have a natural impulse to be self-interested, we can't any longer act that way in that circle, that more intimate circle, because if we do, people are going to resent us. They're not going to like us. So our natural impulse is to put ourselves first. 
But he says, if you do that all the time, when you interact with people face to face with your neighbors and friends and coworkers, you're not going to be respected. You're not going to be honored. You're not going to be loved. And he says very powerfully, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. And by loved, he meant honored, respected, admired, that people thought of you as somebody who was a, a good person. And I think that, again, hasn't also hasn't changed in, in a couple hundred years. What brings us the deepest source of satisfaction isn't the new iPhone, although we like it and it's, it's lovely and, I mean, delightful and pleasant and fun to play with. But what really brings us the deepest satisfactions are our friends and our reputation, what people think of us, how we're perceived. And that's what Smith's talking about in the theory of moral sentiments. So that's one way the two books work together. One is about the commercial sphere, and one is about my personal social interactions with the people around me. And I can't behave the same way in both spheres, because if I always act self-interestedly with the people around me, I'll be shunned, I won't be respected, and I'll be relatively lonely. And similarly, if I try to be altruistic or very kind in the bigger sphere, I can if when I trade, but it's really hard to know, for example, in the modern world, and Smith, again, was on the cusp of this, even in his time, the people who I trade with in uh, 2015, they're so far away, they're so diverse because of the complexity of modern economic life, that if I wanted to make sure that they were all, say, good people before I traded with them, which is what I do when I decide whether to socialize with people. When I socialize with people, I ask the question, is this person a good person? Is this person fun? Is this person nice? If I did that with the people I traded with, I'm not going to trade with many people. I'm going to be pretty right. self-sufficient because it's too expensive. It takes too much time. So what Smith was saying is that I'm going to have two different ways of dealing with those two different spheres. And each book is about each of those spheres. You are an economist. You read The Wealth of Nations, I'm assuming, back when you <laughs> got your original degree or at some yep. point. But The Theory of Moral Sentiments, you said you you never had read. I'm interested to know that process of reading that and then what inspired you to actually take that and put a book that you put together on it. Most economists haven't read The Theory of Moral Sentiments. A lot of them haven't read The Wealth of Nations. You know, it's out of fashion to read anything written before 1980 in general in my profession for better or for worse and that may be stretching it there so you know the attitude of most economists is it was written before certainly before say 1900 that's not necessary i don't have to read it now it turns out as i said before the wealth of nations has a lot of really interesting insights that are still valuable and true and and entertaining to read but the theory of moral sentiments i always thought well that you know that's like that's not about economics that's about psychology or sociology or something else, whatever it is. And if you pick it up and you read the first page, you'll, you'll realize, you know, this isn't for me, <laughs> even if you're not an economist. Right. Like it's, you know, it's, the prose is difficult. It's a very daunting book. And the reason I got interested in it is that a colleague of mine at the time, Dan Klein, uh, so a few years ago said to me, he wanted to talk about it on my podcast on Econ Talk. And I thought that's a good idea. That'll get me to at least look at it. I've heard, you know, people have told me it's a great book. I should read it, I guess. It's by Adam Smith. And so I picked it up and I immediately put it back down. And I thought, this is a mistake. I'll never be able to finish this. I'm going to embarrass myself. And by the time I pushed my way through, I got very excited about it. And my hour long conversation with Dan Klein ended up being six hours, 
we did six different episodes on the book, which are still available for people who are interested. I started to see the economics embedded in the theory of moral sentiments. So the other way that these two books are related, which I started to mention before, is I think they're both about harmony. I think the puzzle of, of harmony is what motivated Smith in both these books. Here's here's the puzzle. I'm self-interested. I like myself more than I like other people. We all feel that way, Most almost all of us. There are a few saints among us, but most of us, we're each at the center of our own universe. So we realize, though, after a little bit of reflection, and when we're young, it, we don't have much reflection. When we're really young, we're in the sandbox or the playground. It's all It's all about me. That's mine. You know, you watch infants, you watch little kids, they grab stuff. They're thinking about themselves mostly. But Smith points out as we grow older and we have to interact with other people, we have to find ways to get along with them. And so each book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments and The and the Wealth of Nations, are about how that harmony manages to emerge despite the fact that each of us is naturally thinking mostly of ourselves. So in the case of trade in The Wealth of Nations – Harmony emerges through competition and the prices that come out of our transactions and trade. And as a result, an orderliness, a complexity emerges on how products get produced through specialization. And that's what he explores in that book. The theory of moral sentiments is really exploring the same question, but in a different application. So the question he's asking is, how do we get along with each other? You know, when I'm in a bad mood, why do I put a good face on it sometimes? Why is it that when really great things happen to me, I don't brag to the rooftops, but only to my closest friends, maybe, but to a casual acquaintance, I'll keep it to myself. If somebody says, how's it going? I won't say, hey, I got this great promotion today, because then that person will go. (laughs) Right. And yet what Smith's saying is that we learn those signals, which are kind of like prices, not exactly, but we get signals about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And that in turn allows you and me to interact with each other, to comfort each other, to enjoy things together, to have conversations rather than just monologues back and forth. We have duets rather than just uh, alternating uh, solos. That social interaction, which we don't think about much, to me is an economic phenomenon. It is economics. It's about how our social lives are constructed. It's about the rules of the game that emerge for how we interact with one another. That's what Smith explores in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and it's a very rich and complicated, interesting picture of our nature and our behavior. At the end of 2004, right after Christmas, there was the Indonesian tsunami that killed hundreds of thousands of people, and it was horrible. And I I remember going through that and feeling this degree of compassion and, you know, making a donation like many people did at that time. And, And it was just a horrible event. A few weeks later, my dog died. My dog was 13 years old, had lived this long life. I had had this dog for a long time. It was kind of my traveling companion before we had kids. Now, I understand the value of a dog, right? I've got two children, and I I love them, and I would never put the dog ahead of the children. I would never put the dog ahead of a couple hundred thousand lives on the other side of the earth. Yet, for weeks, I had this empty hole in my life of not having this dog there. I would get up in the morning and the dog wouldn't be there and I would miss it. There was a part of me that said, why am I so distraught over this dog in front of me that's not here anymore? Yet there's a couple hundred thousand people who just perished in an instant and families whose lives have been altered forever 
on the other side of the globe and it doesn't stick with me day in and day out. Adam Smith kind of had an answer for that one, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And he wrote about a very, you know, similar example, which is why you, you know, you, you brought it up, which is great. His example was an earthquake in China. And of course, in his time, there was no cable television and there wasn't uh, the internet. So, you know, you'd read in the, in the newspaper, someone would tell you that there had been this earthquake and that he said, suppose millions of people died. He said, you'd be upset. You'd feel sad for them and you'd go about your business. You might make, give a charitable donation, as you mentioned. But you'd sleep pretty well at night. He says, on the other hand, if you lose your little finger, if you're told that tomorrow you're going to have to have surgery to have your finger removed, you're going to be a wreck. You're not going to sleep. You're going to be anxious about it. And the implication is on the surface, and I'll, I'll use your case, really. I'll use them both. The implication is you care more about your little finger than than a million Chinese. And you care more about your dog than, a, than hundreds of thousands of Indonesians. We have to confront the reality that in terms of how we sleep, and in terms of that empty feeling that you had for, for weeks, we do care more about ourselves and the things closest to us than things that are far away. That's, that's an observation that Smith makes about human nature, that our nature is to not dwell on tragedy, but when it's close to us, if it's a loved one or, or ourselves that suffers through a, a tragedy, we can't ignore it. It bothers us. It, it hurts us. And... That's a reality that our own personal affairs matter more to us than those of people far away. And as you point out, I mean, a dog is a wonderful thing and you, and you, you cared about the dog, but you would never suggest that the dog is more important than a hundred thousand people in Indonesia. But you felt that way, whether you, your reason tells you otherwise, you, you, your heart felt that way. The interesting thing Smith says next, though, is what's more important. He says, even though you care more about your little finger or you worry more about your little finger than you do about the millions of people who might die in China in an earthquake. And just like you, Charles, might emotionally react more to the loss of your dog than to the deaths of, of 100,000 people in Indonesia. If you were given the chance to save your little finger and kill a million people far away, you would not do it. Even though your emotional reaction says your little finger is more important than the Chinese, you would never, ever say, well, if I can avoid this surgery and a million people are going to die, that's worth it. That would be horrifying, says Smith. That, he says, no person is that monstrous. And similarly, if, if I had told you, oh, your dog will, will live another five years, but there's going to be another tsunami in, in, in Japan and tens of thousands of people are going to die, you'd say, well, you know, I love my dog, but that would be wrong. Right, right. And and what Smith says is that even though we tend to want to put ourselves first, even though we are self-interested, something inside us knows that that is not the right thing to do. And he says it's not because we're good people. It's not because we have a good heart. Because he's already told us we kind of don't. Our emotional reaction tells us what we really are. But he says if you act that way, if you put your little finger in front of the, the lives of others or your dog in front of the lives of others, you're not going to have very many friends. People are going to judge you very, very harshly. And, of course, he's right. And knowing that, says Smith, you recoil from that trade. You recoil from the idea of, of saving your little finger but killing a bunch of people or variations on that that are not as dramatic. We, he picks that dramatic example because – 
as dramatic as that is, you still do care more about your finger right. than those Chinese, which is it's it's awkward. But he's right. In some sense, you do. But when asked, how will you act? Smith says, well, you never act as if your finger was more important, because if you do, you'll be viewed as a monster and you will be a monster. He's right. And so I think it's a very interesting argument for why we do selfless things, why we make sacrifices for others. You know, Smith introduces this fabulous idea of the impartial spectator. He says, we imagine if, as if someone is watching us who is disinterested in the sense that it's not me. He's objective. He's impartial. And he's on, he's on my shoulder or looking over my shoulder and judging me just as real people will if they find out that I do something as horrible as putting myself well in front of other people's tragedies and cause them or bring them about or fail to avoid them. And so he says, that's what keeps us from doing the wrong thing. That's what keeps us doing the right thing. It's our worry about the judgment of others. It's our desire to be honored and respected and thought well of that makes sure that we do the right thing. The way you present it in the book is really an enchanting view on this genius in my mind. And it's almost a little whimsical. You, you describe that impartial spectator in a way that for me was at first kind of silly, like, is there really someone sitting there? But as you go through the examples and you start to think about it, you know, even Lance Armstrong and Bernie Madoff expressed after they got caught essentially the relief of getting caught because they no longer had, you know, essentially to live with this thing hanging over them. That's the impartial spectator, isn't it? You know, one way to think of it, the easy way to think of it, but it's not fully as rich an idea as Smith's idea, is to think of it as your conscience, right? Now, we understand that we have something inside us. We're not always sure of the source. We have something inside us that, that tells us sometimes, don't do that, that's wrong. And of course, Smith's a realist. He's not a fool. He doesn't think this works perfectly. He talks about how in the passion of the moment, you really don't want to hear the, the impartial spectator saying, don't do that. So you ignore him. And you often do selfish, immoral things in the passion of the moment. He says later, though, you'll reflect on it and think, yeah, I shouldn't have probably done that. And you'll be using that idea of, you know, what if someone saw that? They would judge me harshly. Maybe that was wrong. As I say, it's, it's an imperfect restraint on, on immora immorality. But I think if you think about it as your conscience, what Smith's saying is he's giving us a very novel idea about where our conscience comes from. So I think most of us, when we think about, you know, where our conscience comes from, we might say our religion, we might say our upbringing, our parents. But what Smith's saying is it's really your peers. It's the people around you who are your conscience. It's the awareness, the intellectual, this is sort of this introspective exercise of thinking about what people around you would say if they saw you doing what you're doing or heard you saying what you're saying. And that's where your conscience comes from. And he says, you know, it comes from experience when you do the wrong thing and people look askance at you or shun you or criticize you. You know, it's like you touch the hot stove. You get you get burned and you say, oh, well, that's the wrong thing. Okay, I learned that. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to gossip and call this guy a jerk and try to downgrade his reputation so I can get ahead at the workplace and get a promotion. That's wrong. And I learned that not because I mentally you know, think through it, because I start to learn that when I do bad things, I pay a cost in social respect. 
That's his argument. There's a quote of Adam Smith that you feature that I think is kind of a pivotal one, and I'd like to read it and then give you a chance to elaborate on it. Man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Lovely is such a beautiful word, the way that Adam Smith uses it and the way that you explain it. Can you go into that a little bit for us? Sure. So, you know, the, the modern meaning of both of those words is not what Smith had in mind. They're related, but they're not exactly the same. So let's take them one at a time. And I love the little piece where he says, man naturally desires. He's, he's saying we're hardwired. This is built into our nature uh, that we want to be loved and lovely. That we want to be loved is pretty obvious. And by loved, he meant respected, honored, admired, having a good reputation and being loved romantically as well. But but it's only a piece of that. So the fact that we naturally desire that is I think most of us understand that that's a part of what motivates us is to earn the respect and admiration of others. But what Smith is saying when he says not only he says that naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely, he's saying and by love, well, I should say what lovely means first. By lovely, he meant honorable, respectable, praiseworthy, worthy of admiration, a good person. And he lays out what his vision of a good person is, is a person who does the proper thing and the virtuous thing. It's somebody who conforms to social norms and understands what people expect of, of us in terms of politeness and gratitude and civility. And more than that, that we're virtuous. And what he's saying there is that we want people to respect and admire us, but we want them to respect and admire us for the right things, for our loveliness, for our goodness. And that's uh, a fascinating idea. And I think it can help a person, as I argue in the book, motivate their own good behavior. Because Smith says there are two ways to be loved. You can be rich, powerful, and famous, because those people get a lot of attention, a lot of respect, a lot of honor. Or you can just be a really good person. And Smith says, don't be attracted by that first path. Don't go down that first path of fame, wealth, and, and money. You know, those people, they do get a lot of honor and respect. They do get a lot of attention. When a rich person walks into the room, I use the example of my book, you know, if a famous actor like uh, Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie wanders into a, my classroom, hasn't happened yet, but suppose they did, we would all just stop and look at them. We, right. We're so fascinated by celebrity in the modern world and in Smith's time also, that we overvalue the the quality of, of the people who are famous or rich, and we give them so much attention. We want to know what they think, how they dress. We want to know what they're doing, how they spend their time. Smith says that's pitiful. He says that's how we are. We, we understand that. He understands that. We are seduced by celebrity and therefore we want to be famous. We want to be looked at and admired. He says that's the wrong way to be respected and admired. The right way is to be lovely. So loveliness is Smith's uh, gold standard for how you earn the, the respect and admiration of others. And he admits it's not it's the quieter path. It's not the glittery, showy, flashy path. We live in a time when celebrity is just out of control. You look at reality TV, you look at what's popular on the Internet. It's not a very virtuous, particularly virtuous time. And Smith's saying, if he were here today, he'd say, don't go that way. It's a mistake. Don't don't try that. Just be a good friend. Be a good person. Be a good son. Be a good father. Be a good husband. Be a good wife. Learn the respect of those around you. Not as much respect as you'd get 
that other way. He says, but that other way is filled with, with bad things you'll regret later. I listen to Econ Talk every week. I love the podcast. You seem Thanks. to believe that most people are decent. And that's what I get from Adam Smith too, that when we look at humanity, most people are decent people. They're influenced by the impartial spectator. They have an inner desire to be lovely. Is that a common view of humanity among economists? Or do economists tend to think differently about humanity? Is, is that more of a, a novel anomaly to look at humanity as, uh, you know, mostly good people? Well, you have to be careful. I think it's really tempting to to overstate how good people are. Smith talks about the feeble spark of benevolence, meaning we're really not that good and, and willing to help other people. But it's our desire to be part of the social system, to have friends and to interact with others that, that pushes us to do the good thing. So what Smith's really saying is, you know, we're really torn between our self-interest, which is not, again, not, not selfishness, but self-interest, our very natural self-love, our self-centeredness. We're torn between that and our desire to be good to other people, which does not come naturally to us, that desire. What comes naturally to us is there's some loveliness in all of us, but we, we have more of a desire to be lovely than a natural inclination to loveliness. And so what Smith's saying is that our social environment pushes us to an extent toward loveliness, but there's always going to be a tension between our self-interest and our desire to be lovely. And Smith is also very aware that we self-deceive. We, we fool ourselves. We perceive what we do as lovely even when it's not. And I spent a lot of time in my book, and Smith spends a decent amount of time in his book, talking about the fact that we're prone to think of ourselves as more lovely than we actually are. So I don't want to overstate uh, Smith's vision of humanity as a, as a cheery one. It's cheery in how it turns out, more or less, because what he's trying to explain really is civilization. I give examples in the book of how much we trust each other, even with strangers, how well that works out when we trade with strangers and rely on them to do the right thing. And a lot of time they do. And that's really, the more they do, the easier it is to interact with people commercially because you don't have to worry about getting sued or having to sue somebody for failing to live up to a contract. You rely on the fact that they really don't want to exploit you. They'll feel bad if they do. And I think that's a big part of human nature. I don't think it's a, a fantasy. I think it's true. But the way I would describe Smith's vision of human beings is realistic. He doesn't overstate how lovely people are naturally. He doesn't overstate how benevolent they are. He understands we put ourselves first. That's our natural inclination. And to the extent that we are constrained by social forces and norms and politeness and civilization is, is the reason that we do the right thing from, from time to time. Now, most economists, you ask what do economists think of people? Most economists don't spend much time thinking about any of that. Uh, the standard economic vision, economist vision of humanity is, is that we like more rather than less. Uh, we rather have more stuff than less stuff, but we also want more leisure and rather than less leisure. And so there are some tensions in our lives that, that economists are, are, are studying and thinking about. But the real difference is that most economists assume that we're fairly materialistic, that stuff is good. And of course, stuff is good. We'd rather have more stuff than less. I think that general idea is right. 
But that misses the Smithian insight that when we're interacting with people close to us, we don't always try to acquire more stuff at their expense. And I think that's uh, an important misstep that the profession has made in ignoring and neglecting uh, Smith's insights into human nature. I want to bring this into the strong towns sphere because you've said a, a number of things to me that touch on themes we talk about here. People desire to be part of a social system. Smith is talking about civilization. You and I have talked on your show about the change in our development pattern really brought about because of the automobile, but also brought about because of political policy, economic policy in this country, incentives, different things we've done yep. to essentially decentralize cities. Yep. And one of the impacts of this is that where people used to, I think, rub up against each other more naturally, and maybe in ways they wanted to avoid, but ways that our development pattern just forced upon them, when given the opportunity, have kind of retreated to their own space. We've got our own lot now. I've got a garage. I hit the garage door opener. I go in. I don't have to interact with my neighbors on a day-to-day basis if I don't want to. What would Smith, you think, say about that change in civilization? Let me give you an analogy. I use this one all the time. I love my mother-in-law. She's a wonderful woman, but I wouldn't want her living in my house. She's great. She's wonderful, but I, I wouldn't want her there. And I wouldn't want her there because a little bit of the impartial spectator, I mean, if she's there, I've got to be a little bit different about how I act. You know, I'm going to have someone there who's judging me maybe a little bit differently, even though she's a sweet, wonderful person. But then I ask myself, okay, I wouldn't want her there, but would my life be better off if she were? Would I be a better person? Would my kids have a better upbringing? Would my wife be a happier person? So what do you think, Smith? And maybe if not Smith, what do you think about that change in the context of some of the things you've written about in the the theory of moral sentiments? Well, I'll give the example of my book of uh, getting into an argument with my wife, getting frustrated at what she's telling me I should be doing with respect to a meeting, and I'm getting all angry and worked up. And then I realize five minutes later, I'm thinking, why was I so angry at her? It's really my mistake. And I was really venting at her about my own shortcomings. So I apologized to her. And and I realized that if somebody had been in the backseat of the car, an actual impartial spectator, say a friend or or my mother-in-law, to take your example, sure. I, would, I would never have talked to her that way. And I was ashamed of that. And it, it really makes your point that sometimes things that are a little bit unpleasant can be good for us. And that social forces and social context can change the way we behave in all kinds of ways. While you're talking and asking me about this, it reminded me of an expression I love, which is you know, dance as if nobody's watching. <laughs> yeah. When I was younger, I danced, I think, more. As you get older, you get a little more self-conscious. And when you do dance, you're aware that people are watching you. And you might dance differently than if you were by yourself. Social interaction matters a lot in how we behave and in and, and good and bad ways. But let me get back to your deeper question and Smith's relevance for, say, um, strong towns. So, you know, Smith was writing at a time when cities were just starting to, urban life was just beginning to be important. You know, the proportion of people that lived on the farm was much larger in Smith's day, much, much larger. And, you know, farm life is very lonely. 
farm life is you, your livestock, your family, right, right. and maybe the farmer around the corner because sometimes your plow breaks and you, or it's snowing and you got a crisis. But farm life is inherently very little interaction with people right around you. You might have some farm hands, you know, people who work for you, but your circle is very small. And you contrast that with, say, living in London or New York or Chicago or Paris or Beijing, when you're constantly jostling, not just emotionally, but physically with thousands of people every day and certainly interacting casually, at least at, say, your, your purchases in stores and your workplace with, say, dozens of people or hundreds of people potentially. And what Smith, I think, was interested in is, you know, again, he doesn't explicitly say this, but I think he's trying to understand that's a big change. Urban life is a, is really different from rural life. And you're talking about suburban life. Suburban life is sort of in between, right? In suburban life, depends on your block, often, whether you have friendly neighbors or a social neighborhood. And you find most of your social interactions using your car, as you point out. You might, you know be a little league coach. And so you're going to interact with a bunch of parents and and kids that you have to drive to to see two or three times a week. You might have other interests. You might belong to a, a church or synagogue or mosque and have a circle of of intimate friends there or a community feeling there. But it's really different from the two other extremes, the extreme of the farm or the extreme of the the really intense city with millions of people piled on top of each other. And to go back to our older, the theme we talked about earlier, you know, the, the rules of the game, the social expectations are very different in those settings. So, you know, a farmer who's got a crisis, you know, a calf that's having, that's struggling to be born and he goes to a neighbor to get, to get help or his plows stuck in the snow and he's, he can't get out. You go to your neighbor, your neighbor and, my understanding is in those settings, the neighbor just says, you know, where do we go? Let's go. Right. You try to do that in New York, it's people might run away from you. They <laughs> might, you know, they, they'd be in, scared. And in that suburban setting, it's sort of in between. We don't really have that that relationship with each other that we have in a small town or in, an, in a rural setting. It's not quite as different as it would be in an urban setting where I'm going to be interacting with, with lots more people and whole different set of rules. You know, again, you're on the subway in New York. Somebody who strikes up a conversation with a stranger is scary. People, you can watch the body language. When a stranger talk, starts talking in a subway car, people start to shrink, literally. They try to get away from that person because they're scared and because that person's breaking the social rules. In a country store where you go to get your feed, I'm sure you talk all the time and you have to. It would be rude if you didn't. Yeah, exactly. The rules are totally different. I think what's important when we think about these things is that, as you pointed out earlier, these uh, social norms, they're responding to a whole set of realities in our in our living patterns. And sometimes they're responding to public policy that has pushed us in a particular direction and caused a set of social norms then to emerge as a result. And that's not always uh, necessarily what what we want. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about the process of researching and writing a book like this. I've dabbled in The Wealth of Nations, but I, I will fully admit that I have not read it. But when you dabble in a book like that, or I have read books of that era, 
it has an impact on your inner monologue a little bit because the writing is different. The language is different. It's a little esoteric. They write more gentlemanly. Did his writing have any impact on you in that way? Did you find yourself, you know, walking around with a, a different inner monologue? I'm a big fan. I, when I was younger, I don't spend as much time reading as I, as I did then, but I was a big fan when I was younger of 19th century novels, Dickens, Jane Austen, Thackeray. We don't write that way anymore. And right. it's hard for modern, you know, I try to get my kids to read Dickens and some of them have, and some of them aren't just, they're just not interested or Don Quixote, Cervantes, which is, you know, the sentences are long, they're ornate. There's lots of link clauses. I just saw a very uh, depressing chart about the reading level of the uh, state of the union address over time in the United States. <laughs> it's, it's a steady, steady downward trend. The language has gotten more and more simplistic. Uh, it's at a lower and lower level. And that's just a reality that we're a nation that listens to podcasts and watches videos more than we read books compared to, say, 100 or 200, 300 years ago. Sure. But going back to Smith, you know, I love his language. It's daunting to some extent to a modern ear. But if you work at it and you put the time in, it is very rewarding because he has such a beautiful way of expressing himself, uh, sometimes with humor, but with elegance and grace. I don't know how much it affected my inner monologue, but I, I did find it very rewarding. And I should confess, I'm not a scholar of Smith, and I'm not particularly interested in placing the theory of moral sentiments in its full intellectual context. What I was interested in is taking that book and thinking, if I wanted my kids or my friends to read this book, and they're not going to, which most of them aren't. It's also available online at econlib.org, by the way. If you want to read the whole thing, sample it. What I try to do in my book is give you the, the good parts. I try to take my favorite quotes and then explicate them, explain them if they're if the language is convoluted or old-fashioned or hard to understand. It's just really fun. It's just really rewarding. So my book is, again, it's not a, it's not a work of scholarship. It's Here's what I learned from Adam Smith, and I think you'll maybe learn something from it, too. I don't know how old your kids are, but I've got two daughters, 10, and one's going to turn eight here in a week. And it's fun to hear you talk about them in the context of this book. And I just wonder, that there's times when I write where I'm writing for my dad. My dad is like the prototypical you know, person who's going to be skeptical of whatever I write. And I have to make a nice compact argument yeah. that, you know, explains. But there's other times that I feel like I'm writing for my kids, something that I would want them to read 20, 30 years from now and say, wow, dad was a, a decent guy. He was a smart guy. How much of that plays into your writing, if at all? Yeah, well, you want to be loved. You want to be right? lovely, right? Yeah, yeah you want, and you want your kids to think you're the greatest dad of all time. Right. And of course you are. In your own mind. Uh, it might even be true. There is somebody who is the greatest dad of all time. <laughs> it's probably not me. But I always think about the reader over my shoulder, which I think is a very useful way to think. It's really another, it's a variation on the impartial spectator, right? You're writing and you're, you're realizing if you're a good writer, I think you realize sometimes that a, a particular passage is convoluted or confusing. And you realize your dad or your, your friend who disagrees with you, wherever it is, isn't going to get the argument if you don't rewrite it. And so you rewrite it. I have different readers over my shoulder. It depends. Sometimes it's my dad. Sometimes it's my wife. Sometimes it's that friend who doesn't agree with me ideologically. And sometimes it's my kids because 
you know, for me, this book was, it's something of a manifesto. It's a, it, I called it, you know, the subtitle of the book is an unexpected guide to human nature and happiness. The unexpected part to me is because it comes from Adam Smith. You wouldn't expect to be able to give you a guide to human nature and happiness if all you know is the wealth of nations. But it's also a guide. And Smith didn't write the theory of moral sentiments as a guide per se. He wrote it as a scholarly treatise on, on morality and philosophy. And I, I thought it was it would be fun and, and I hope valuable to my kids and other people's kids and to ourselves to um, take the lessons out of it. And that's also part of what I tried to do there. Is there another Keynes Hayek video in the works or can you talk about that at all? Well, it's funny you mention it because, you know, you asked me whether, whether I wrote this book for my kids. I don't think any of my kids have read it yet. My kids are 15 to 22, by the way. Okay, sure. I have, I have a, a 22-year-old daughter and three sons, 15, 17, and 20. They've read parts of the manuscript and gave me uh, some good feedback, but I don't know if anyone's read it start to finish. My other books... Some have read some of them. I don't know. I don't know if any of my kids have read all all three of my other books before I wrote this one. I think most of my children know the the Keynes Hayek rap videos by heart, <laughs> <laughs> which tells you something about kids and that's awesome. Fifteen. One of the most satisfying uh, parenting moments is when they quote them with respect to something that's not related to Keynes and Hayek, but they understand the underlying economics. I, I find myself uh, quoting them all that, you know, give us a chance so we can discover the most valuable ways to serve one another. I, I, I walk around saying it all the time. <laughs> Seriously. That's a good motto. My youngest son studying American history. And we're talking about how, uh, Hamilton, uh, bailed out the States yeah. and took on their debts. And he, he said, you know, when you bail out the losers, there's no, <laughs> there's end, no of the end of the cost. <laughs> and which opened up a nice conversation about, and I forget the year, but sometime in the middle of the 19th century, the U.S. decided not to bail them out. And Thomas Sargent, Nobel laureate, talks about why that was an important decision then. And so it's that's very rewarding. But you ask if there's going to be a third one. The answer is I don't know. You know, John Popola and I created them together. I am working on a poem, which might end up being a, a, a rap video or some kind of song someday or maybe just a video. But again, what's interesting to me is that my youngest son – loves that poem. And I've read it to him, you know, maybe four or five times, and he already knows a good chunk of it by heart, which tells you something about how people learn and, and what's the right way to reach people in the 21st century. I think it's music and poetry and uh, visuals, not so much uh, the written word, but occasionally you still want to write a book. And uh, there are a few people who will read it. And it's a different experience, right? You watch a 10 minute Rap video, you might go, wow, that was so cool. Yeah. But if you read a great book, uh, it could change your life. So um, I think that's uh, still going to be important and it's still an exhilarating thing when it, when you can do, when it, when you read a great book. Well, I, I do hope that our listeners pick up your book. It's called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life by Russ Roberts, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness. You can find Russ's work online, econtalk.org is the podcast. You're on Twitter at econtalker. I've been made aware now from listening to your conversation on Bretton Woods that you are on the tall side of short. Um, <laughs> that was a great way. Uh, a great line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not my line. It's Ben Steele's. It's a great line. It is great. Thanks so much for this conversation. I really uh, have enjoyed chatting with you. Me too. Thanks, Charles. Uh, let's do it again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care and keep doing what you can to build strong towns.
they know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. can counter depression. People aren't chessmen you move on a board at your whim, their dreams and desires ignored. With political incentives, discretion's a joke. Those dials are twisting, just mirrors and smoke. We need stable rules and real market prices so prosperity emerges and cuts short the crisis. Give us a chance so we can discover the most valuable ways to serve one another. 